With more than 500 programs a year, there's never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. It's always virtual in our world right now. Anyway, my name is Kara Swisher, and I'm the host of the New York Times podcast, Sway. I'm excited to be moderating this program. Uh, I'm pleased to be joined by media scholar Ethan Zuckerman to discuss his new book, Mistrust, Why Losing Faith in institution provides, Institutions Provides the Tools to Transform Them, which is a very hopeful way to look at it. He's an associate professor of public policy communication information at the University of Massachusetts. Ethan focuses on teaching communications and CICs. He's also the founder of the Institute uh, for Digital Public Infrastructure, a group dedicated to researching and building alternatives to the current commercial internet, which we could use. Uh, Mistrust uh, uses research uh, from political scientists, legal theorists, and activists in the streets to understand why so many people started have started to doubt uh, social institutions in the first place. Uh, a mistrust in institutions uh, poses an uncertain future, but Ethan is sure we can use this sentiment to fuel civic participation and create a more equitable society. Uh, we'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask uh, your questions too. So if you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and you'll be, we'll be getting them later in the program. We want to leave a lot of time for questions. I am good at asking questions, but I think you were probably better. Thank you, Ethan Zuckerman, for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for being here, Kara. It's great to talk with you. So uh, how many of these have you done Zoom things? A zillion? You know, I think we're all living life on Zoom these days, but yeah. um, the ones where we actually get to have a conversation yeah. are, are my favorites. Yeah, that's true. Um, so the minute I get a vaccine, I'm never going on Zoom again. Um, so, uh, so that's my plan. That's my plan. So let's talk a little bit about this topic. As I said, just before this, I was talking to the New York Times, uh, their state of the Times for their employees about this jo- this issue, because uh, it's a, you know, it's a big concern and something that the New York Times thinks about a lot. And we're talking with Ben Smith, who's the... Um, the media columnist for them too. And, you know, there's lots of things going on. So why don't you lay out sort of your theories and then we'll have a discussion about various things that are happening within media and also social media and and also just, uh, just what's coming next. So people understand that. Sure. So in part, I ended up writing this book because I am interested in the ways in which we've lost trust in the press and other sort of media institutions But the further back I got, the more I realized that there's just a crisis of trust in institutions as a whole in the United States at the moment. If you look back in sort of survey research where we go out to Americans and say, do you trust the government in Washington to do the right thing? That number peaks around 1964 and you have 77% of Americans saying, yep, I trust the government. They're on my side. They're working for me. If you ask people that question right now, fewer than 17% will say that the government is working for them. So that's an incredible collapse. And weirdly enough, it happens way earlier than you might think. It starts happening during the 1970s. And in fact, from the 1970s onward, you can see American trust in all sorts of different institutions start to decay. So it's not just the presidency and Congress, it's everything from banks and universities and schools and the healthcare system. 
if something is big enough that we are not dealing with an individual, we're dealing with a bureaucracy, we're dealing with an institution, we seem to have moved from the default position of trusting them to the default position of mistrusting them. And that shift has all sorts of scary implications, some of which we've actually seen play out in the real world uh, just in the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking about that idea of it going down, what do you think prompted that? In 1964, you know, this was coming off of the the, um, the Kennedy assassination and some, you know, a lot of things were happening at the time, big changes in society. What do you think precipitated that decline? I mean, you could look to Nixon and the and the and and his departure, uh, you know, ignominious departure. You could look at a lot of things. What do you think has fueled that? If you could pick a few. Uh, reasons. Sure. So let's look at it historically first. The first big slide in trust in America happens between that peak in 64 and Carter, right? Mm -hmm. By the end of the Carter presidency in 1980, we've gone from three and four Americans trusting government to one and four. So it's an enormous transformation. Mm -hmm. And the 70s are a crazy decade. We have the Vietnam War, we have Watergate, we have an energy crisis, we have problems with inflation. Mm -hmm. It makes perfect sense that you would see that sort of slide. What's interesting is that we never quite recover. Confidence in government goes up during Reagan. It goes up again during Clinton's presidency. But frankly, we haven't been above 20 percent mm -hmm. uh, in the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the last big wave of confidence in government uh, is right before we invade Iraq after 9-11. There's a certain amount of a rally around the flag effect. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of hypotheses about what changes trust really quickly. One is the theory that we're just much better educated. Um, in the 1960s, you had a lot of people who weren't finishing high school, never mind going through college. We have a lot of people with sharper critical thinking skills. You have the possibility that we just have vastly more information. We have a much more aggressive press. Mm -hmm. But I think there's two that maybe we don't talk about enough. One is that inequality has gone up incredibly sharply in the United States since the 1970s. And as inequality goes up, these institutions are not serving many Americans very well. Mm -hmm. And it makes perfect sense that you might lose faith at the same time. Right. The other is that when you watch an institution fail, it can take a long time to get your confidence back. Mm -hmm. When we look at some of these crashes of confidence, you can see them very directly. People lose an enormous amount of faith in organized religion when we see the Catholic Church scandals exposed by the Boston Globe mm -hmm. in their reporting about priestly abuse. We can see faith in big business go through the floor after the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So a big part of this may be that trust takes a very, very long time to earn. It takes a very short amount of time to wipe it out right. if we see a situation where an institution fails quite badly. Would you imagine that it's just people's rote answer? For that it was a like, oh, yeah, I don't trust the government. It's, it's, it's this is an American thing. This is, you know, if you want to go back to the whiskey rebellion, we can find some dissatisfied customers of the United States of America at that time. So this is something that's that's happened over the course of our history quite a bit. Americans are a naturally rebellious people. Uh, mm -hmm. The mistrust book actually starts with Shay's Rebellion, which mm -hmm. is even before the Whiskey mm -hmm. Rebellion. Uh, and whiskey's my favorite, but go ahead. Very very, very early on in mm -hmm. uh, American history, just shortly after we've declared independence. And in Western Massachusetts, where I live, um, you have farmers losing their farms mm -hmm. because they can't pay taxes to the sure. state of Massachusetts. They say they're army vets. 
they're going to fight for their rights. They storm the armory at Springfield. Thomas Jefferson, writing about this, says, I hold it that a little rebellion now and then to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So there certainly is a history of not only rebellion in the American character, uh, but forgiveness for the rebellion. One of the crazy things about Shay's Rebellion is that not only are very few people prosecuted for it, uh, actually Daniel Shays himself ends up getting a pension from the U.S. Army uh, mm-hmm. instead of going to jail. What I will say, though, is that this isn't just a U.S. phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's actually happening in a lot of advanced democracies. There are some exceptions to the rule. The Nordic countries tend to have pretty high trust in government. But throughout Europe, you look at France, you look at Spain, you look at the UK, Mm -hmm. um, even in Asia, you look at Japan, trust in many institutions is extremely low. And I think we have to look at this not just as an American peculiarity, where there are certainly other factors at Mm -hmm. work, like the fact that Donald Trump has sort of weaponized mistrust and turned it into his main political tool. Mm I think there also has to be a recognition that these systems that we built sometimes a few decades ago, sometimes hundreds of years ago, Mm -hmm. may not all be fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. And and that's really what the book is asking people to look at is, are there cases where we're trying to prop up systems that just aren't working very well anymore? And what we actually need to think about is overthrowing them and overturning them in a, in a fairly significant way. Yeah, overthrow is not a great word for this week. But um, but well, it's interesting. That means we have to give Donald Trump a pension. Oh, well. Um, and probably that's exactly I, I think that's he's exactly still got one, at, at least depending on what happens in, in the Senate oh, later this week. Come on. We know it's going to happen. In any case, um, that it's sort of a look the other way mentality of after things have happened and try to settle things. But so, so, so here we are, we get to the point where it's really low. What is it right now? And, and do you imagine that the social media and technology has really accelerated that? Or was it just a, a way that it was going? Has it gotten worse since the advent of a Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, those kind of medias? No, I mean, trust in government in particular is around about 17%. And frankly, it's been right around that number through all of the Obama and all of the Trump presidencies. Mm -hmm. Um, It changes a little bit. Uh, When Donald Trump comes into office, Republicans are more trusting, Democrats are less trusting, but we stay around that very low number. And And because mistrust has been so high Mm -hmm. for so long, it's actually very hard to blame it on Facebook. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I like to remind people, because I think we sort of associate mistrust right now uh, with the Republican Party, Mm -hmm. with this sort of belief that media can't be believed, that the deep state is control of everything. Um, I started this writing this book right in the wake of the Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. And that's where people on the left were going out and saying, you know what, this system isn't working. Mm-hmm. Even with a Democratic president in office, inequality is rising. We are not getting what we need in terms of health care, public service, economic mobility. Mm-hmm. And Occupy, you know, one of its few strengths is that it's such an incredibly broad movement. It's not just trying to fix one thing or another. It's looking at a large system and essentially saying, this is simply not working for us. That, of course, was also sort of its undoing. It didn't have a very clear agenda for Mm -hmm. how to fix things because the problems were, in fact, so enormous. It was just a statement of fact that this isn't working and no no other plan. Uh, We'll get to things like Wall Street bets in a a minute because that's the same kind of mentality going on that this isn't trustworthy and we're going to break it. Um, So so it doesn't – so social media doesn't change it. These are trends. Talk about other parts that aren't trusted. Okay, government, I'm not surprised when you see all those 
uh, things about Congress people, it's always low. And the press has always been sort of down in the in the dog lows of, of for most of its history, correct? Here in this country. So, I, I mean, Except the press actually is incredibly well trusted in the 1970s, right? Yeah, well, Watergate. So, again, welcome. going back in, into history, Watergate, right? Everybody wants to be Woodward and Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of romance with the press continues um, through the 70s, well into the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, trust in press really starts going down when it gets much more clearly partisan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, once we have sort of a CNN, Fox News divide, uh, and that's really fairly recent. Um, Obviously, we've had some upticks in press trust, uh, particularly on the Democratic side of things. I I think we saw folk on the left feel like the press was more on their side. Mm -hmm. I I do think that digital media is accelerating a lot of these trends, certainly phenomena that feed on mistrust, like QAnon, um, like the Stop the Steal movement. These are unfolding on social media and the fact that people are able to find the fact pattern that they're looking for, that absolutely is connected to this. But I think the big message that I'm, I'm trying to get at first, I mean, the mm-hmm. other big message is that I do think some of this is fixable. Yeah, we're going to get But to I that. think the big message that I'm trying to get across is that this didn't happen in the last five years. Mm-hmm. We've got this vision of an American system that works. And we tend to feel like if we just tinker with it a little bit, if we put the right people in place, those institutions are fundamentally sound. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm actually trying to say is I'm not sure that's true. And I'm not sure we even believe that's true. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the left with Occupy, whether it's the right with Stop the Steal, the overall trends suggest that we believe that many of the systems of the world are rigged against us. Mm-hmm. You asked for an example of one. If you watch the collapse of trust in the healthcare system, mm-hmm. once healthcare becomes the HMO system, trust goes through the floor. Right. People actually have very high trust in their doctors and their personal relationships. But as soon as they're dealing with the bureaucracy as a way of dealing with healthcare, their trust in that system as a whole starts going down they start seeing the healthcare system as being an institution that is stacked against them. And then weirdly, that starts paralleling things like the anti-vax movement mm-hmm. or movements where people are turning against medicine as a field. As a thing. And, and that's where, for me, this, this whole subject of mistrust starts getting very, very scary. Mm-hmm. So, t- so, this, so healthcare, is there anything that goes up or become, is trusted? What is trusted besides Walter Cronkite? And, and most people don't know you, who he is at this point. You, you, you're going to love this. The one institution in American life that is more trusted now than it was in the 1970s is the military. Hmm. It's the single institution that increases in trust for the and 1970s to what percent? present. Uh, it's it's quite high. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's around 60%. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, in many ways, the most respected institution, which is pretty worrisome, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's actually something that you would worry about happening in a democracy. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, when the when the army is who we look to uh, as the most respected institution, that's more what Egypt looks like uh, rather than uh, what the United States looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, that's actually a, a picture of sort of how deep the crisis is. Mm-hmm. I think we've gone from you know, disrespect for the government and, and, and mistrust of Congress, which understandable in many ways. I think a lot of people found themselves turning to business and hoping that business would give the leadership moral or otherwise to deal with big problems like climate change. I think now people are realizing that even NGOs, even voluntary organizations in many cases 
don't seem well suited to deal with our contemporary challenges. So you have that, you have uh, big business, businesses, their trust? Uh, big business trust went down really sharply mm -hmm. in 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. um, that was uh, sort of an enormous change. But it, it, across the board, you can look at universities, you right. can look at banks, you can look at labor unions. Um, the surveys that get carried out are, are quite remarkable. They look at about 25 different institutions. institutions. Right. Um, internationally, the, the PR firm Edelman does a similar survey. Yes, the trust It goes out and asks people about um, NGOs, governments, uh, big business, and and they're, they're finding a slide in every country except for the ones that have had a very strong COVID response. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been really interesting. That's been an interesting well, indication. Sense, right? New Zealand, Taiwan, they have really bumped up in part because nothing succeeds like success, right? Mm -hmm. Some of this has to do with people making a judgment call mm -hmm. over the years that the institutions simply are, are not doing right, a very good job the of task, and their then they core prove function. It. They prove it. So, so what, besides the military, what goes up? Is there, are there people that you think go up or do you, is it just institutions? Are there people believe more? Cause, cause Trump is in many ways a cult of personality of a single personality. So, when people study trust, they break it sort of into three different categories. Mm -hmm. um, how much do you trust your friends and immediate neighbors? Mm -hmm. How much do you trust a stranger, right? And those are both measures of interpersonal trust. Mm -hmm. It looks like people trust their friends and neighbors perhaps more than ever. Uh, and in fact, this is a little bit of a social media phenomenon, right? Now, we now get recommendations of what are my friends eating? What movies mm -hmm. are they seeing? So on mm -hmm. and so forth. There's a decent amount of trust around there. Levels of sort of interpersonal trust, how much do you trust a stranger? The mm -hmm. question that gets asked in the World Values Survey is, can most people be trusted or it's always important to be careful? Uh, and it's crazy. It has wide, wide, wide ranges. Mm -hmm. uh, in countries like the Nordic countries, New Zealand, um, even in Japan, um, you can see answers as much as 70 or 80% of people saying, no, you can trust most people. Mm -hmm. um, often in developing nations, uh, Brazil, you'll see answers well under 10%. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is sort of in the middle of the pack uh, by those trust metrics. We come out around 35 40% on mm -hmm. the sort of interpersonal trust. We're slightly less trusting than, than the mean. But the institutional trust is where we've seen this huge shift. Our worldview is not necessarily that strangers are scarier than they used to be. Mm -hmm. I think we think our friends and family are just as trustworthy as they used to be. Mm -hmm. I think it's that we're looking at these systems and finding the ways in which they're broken mm -hmm. and and starting to to really think that, that some radical transformation has to happen. All right, we're going to talk in a minute about that. But when you face a situation like this where it's been going down, it's sort of the stasis we live in where we feel wary of everything, right? Or wary or distrustful of things. What does that do to a society? I mean, when you, one would imagine the trust situation during the Trump administration, who that was his campaign slogan is mistrust everything. Yeah. When that becomes weaponized, how, what effect does that have? Well, let me try an extreme case. And you may decide that it's, it's too far mm -hmm. out of the realm of conversation. Okay. But it's been really interesting to watch the Nigerian government mm -hmm. try to recover from incredibly low levels of trust. Mm -hmm. um, Nigeria had an amazing, in, incredibly smart finance minister, Minister Okeala, 
who ended up suggesting that Nigeria should end its gas subsidy, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is a very poor country, but it basically gives incredibly cheap gasoline to the very wealthy people uh, who manage to own cars. Mm -hmm. Any economist in the world would tell you that this is a great thing to do. Pull the gas subsidy, put it towards education, mm -hmm. people are going to benefit from it. So Ikeala pulls the subsidy and everybody goes out into the streets and people are trying to figure out what went wrong here. Mm -hmm. And the answer is people have so little trust in the Nigerian government to take that money and use it for the benefit of the people that any positive change, any change of sort of saying, we're going to move this money away from giving subsidies to rich people to helping the poor people just leads to people saying, no, this is just another way to steal from us. You mm -hmm. took away the one thing we had, cheap gasoline, made mm -hmm. transit cheap. We're going to protest over that. That's the danger. When mm -hmm. you hit a point where confidence is so low in an institution, you can't do the institution anything. can reach a point where it can't even do anything right mm -hmm. anymore. We're so unwilling to fund it that there's no way for it to do right. And if you think back to it, that's and much older argument. That's the Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. you know, Margaret Thatcher argument. That's the 1980s. Right. Um, the state can't do anything right. Therefore, we won't give the state any, any money. And therefore, the state won't be able to do anything right. right. The problem is you do that long enough and mm -hmm. you end up with a situation like COVID-19 mm -hmm. where you really want a competent institution mm -hmm. to step in and tell you what to do. Right. And then you find so yourself in a situation so, so where is it, is it reached? I agree with you with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. That was their message. But they didn't weaponize it in quite the same way. There's a deep state. There's a there's a, a state that can't do anything. And I'm going to show you how incompetent it is by being incompetent. Like right now. I mean, it just, just now as we were talking on the uh, – the headline is we're getting 200 million new doses now. Suddenly it's a 50% rise in two weeks because of competent administration, yeah. right? Like competent people. And you don't have Scott Atlas and Peter Navarro doing whatever tango though those two imbeciles did. But what, what, how does that, how, how, how damaging was Trump to that? Or is it that you can rely on government as long as you don't have incompetence leading the way. You know, I just I just interviewed someone about that. And I think a little bit of incompetence can really damage any effort that you have, whether it's COVID or anything else at the beginning, especially. I think we're all going to be trying to figure out what Trump did to America for the next 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think it's a phenomenon along those lines. But here's a quick reflection on Trump and mm -hmm. mistrust. Trump can't get elected without a very high level of mistrust. Yes. So... You know, one of the terms that I use in the book, and I agree with you, it's a really uncomfortable term right now, but I, I stole <laughs> the right term now. from Chris Hayes. He talks about institutionalists and insurrectionists, right? Mm -hmm. Institutionalists want people to work within existing institutions. Insurrectionists say those institutions don't work anymore. Let's replace them with something else, mm -hmm. right? He's not talking about the, the, the capital riots. We should talk about the capital riots. But he suggests that you got to think in terms of left and right and in terms of institutionalists and insurrectionists, right? 2016, Hillary Clinton left institutionalist, right? She knows how the system works. The system works very well under her. She's been secretary of state. Mm -hmm. And we end up running against a right insurrectionist. Yeah. And in fact, Trump defeats the right institutionalist, right? Mm -hmm. Jeb Bush, you know, right. institutions work pretty well for him. Trump comes in and says, don't trust any of these institutions. They're all stacked against you. And mistrust is what allows Trump to win that election. Mm -hmm. now, of course, he doesn't win the popular vote. 
the electoral college and all the problems there get him there. So mistrust has a ton to do with how he gets power in the first place. Mm-hmm. Normally, when politicians run as outsiders, they take power and they say, it's okay. My hands are on the reins now. Mm-hmm. You can trust these institutions now. Mm-hmm. Trump does something really weird. He says, no, these institutions are all screwed up. They're all against me. Look, my FBI is against me. The, the, the Justice Department is against me. Even when I hire people who I think are with me, they turn out to be Republicans in name only. That's why I have to keep purging them. We haven't seen this before. And that's what authoritarians do. Mm-hmm. Authoritarians come in and say, you can't trust the system. I am the only one that you can trust. Mm-hmm. And that weaponization of mistrust, don't trust the media, don't trust the government, don't trust the deep state, don't trust state governments, don't trust the election systems. That is a really unusual circumstance. And it's one that we're generally speaking not used to. No. And what that's going to do to America in the long term, that's really hard to know. Well, I don't think we can make even a guess at that right yet. I think it didn't work because it didn't because you didn't trust him because of COVID, because it showed that when you got to a situation that required trust, being distrustful doesn't really work. Correct? I mean, am I, I, I think that's that? right. I, I think a lot of political commentators would argue that the election we had was close enough that if we were not in a pandemic that very soon is going to be responsible for half a million deaths, mm-hmm. uh, Trump would have been reelected. Mm-hmm. And it's quite possible that we would have seen another four or more years uh, of erosion of these institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be very strange if in retrospect, we look at the horror of the pandemic um, as one of the things that let us Saved sort of us. pull yeah. our government system back from the brink. Mm-hmm. The thing that I would say now is that this is not a good time to exhale and say, thank goodness, now we've got a competent institutionalist with his hands on the reins. Mm-hmm. Um, the danger is that we have so many people frustrated with systems that aren't working well for them, mm-hmm. that we have this now very strong insurrectionist tendency, mm-hmm. which again, I argue sometimes can be pushed for good. Right. People ask me, what, what's an insurrectionist movement that you're encouraged by? I'm enormously encouraged by defund the police. Mm-hmm. I'm encouraged by communities essentially saying, look, the police as an institution have been failing communities of color, our community in Baltimore or in Minneapolis, so badly that we can't make little tweaks to this. We actually have to look at that institution and say, that just doesn't work that way anymore. We need a new institution in its place. That's how this can become fuel. But that's a big twist from from how we're sort of looking at mistrust. All right. So last thing in this, and then I want to talk about how you can fix that, because I do think there's some cases where it does we're damaging things or breaking things matters. And I'm thinking of the famous uh, Facebook uh, motto that they had plastered up on the walls there, which is move fast and break things. Obviously that was a, um, a motto about software, but actually it had much more resonance. Um, and I, what I always used to say when I see Mark or, or anybody else there, I'm like, you use the word break. And of course it's a technical term and people don't realize that, but Break is about not fixing. Why not move fast and change things? Why not move fast and transform things? Why not move fast and improve things? Um, it's break with no idea of fix, which is interesting, um, which was very appealing. It's, a, it's an appealing Silicon Valley idea of disrupt. The words they use are always sort of semi-violent, uh, disrupt, break, 
you know, kill, that kind of stuff. Um, so talk a little bit about where, what happens then if you have this, it, it ends up at the Capitol, this insurrectionist mentality with a bunch of people with bad information, with a really poor information diet, uh, who do not trust, who have lost their trust in everything, and then are fed, a, you know, a whole bunch of lies, essentially. What is, where does that leave us at that moment? It's a terrifying moment, mm -hmm. right? So, so this is weaponized mistrust, mm -hmm. right? Trump figures out that mistrust is what gets him into power. Mm -hmm. And so it's the weapon that he has. And when it becomes clear that he's losing power, mm -hmm. he tries to channel it into violent revolution mm -hmm. uh, and the hope that someone will come in and, and stop this process. Mm -hmm. um, the trick with this is that you're absolutely right. The people who are suffering through the Q delusion, the people who are following Stop the Steal um, have a bad information diet, but that's not enough to explain what's going on, mm -hmm. right? There's a tendency, and particularly you and I are, are both very enmeshed in the tech community. Mm -hmm. We have a tendency to try to reduce everything to information problems mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, we have to take seriously the notion that you know, one of the two parties that governs this country adopted, for the most part, a narrative that just simply isn't true, mm -hmm. and then took votes trying to overturn a legitimate election. Mm -hmm. And right now, it seems very unclear that there's going to be any political consequences for mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to imagine how Facebook by itself Agreed. can sort of solve that problem, mm -hmm. when it's actually a problem of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And, and, literally promoting a, a false reality. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we've hit a truly scary moment. Uh, I think in the same way that, you know, it would have been a truly scary moment to elect another four years of Trump, you know, had we actually seen uh, the vote count stopped, had we actually seen Pence try to step in sure. uh, and make this move and sort of claim that he wasn't going to certify, I feel like we skated very, very close to the edge. Mm -hmm. As we try to come back and fix this, yeah, absolutely. We've got to think about how we deal with mis and disinformation, but we've also got to look at a bunch of these political systems that are really starting to fail us. Mm -hmm. And they include how we do redistricting. They have to do with the electoral college. They mm -hmm. have to do even with the census, right? A huge institutional project that was tremendously neglected under Trump and is mm -hmm. going to have a whole bunch of very dangerous implications over the next 10 years. All right. So how do we fix that? How do we get people back to the things? Because, I, I you know, government right now, they can't agree on lunch and the stuff that's going on in front of your, you know, there's a expression I use, you have to, uh, you have to um, believe what you see, not see what you believe, you know, which is, which is, I think a lot of people are on the, the latter, which is whatever they believe is what they see. Um, and, and, and so everybody sees things, the same things differently, sort of the, po we thought we were in a post-race yep. society, we're in a post-fact society, really. Um, so how do you, what is, what is the way to get back to, to civic engagement and, and for, for people to, to create, to fuel civic participation and, and create that more equitable society? So the reason that I wrote the book mm -hmm. was that I had all of these students at MIT and, mm -hmm. and now over at UMass who are 
incredibly interested in making social change in the world. They mm -hmm. see problems, they're willing to put in the work, they're willing to imagine and build a different world. Mm -hmm. They just have almost zero confidence that the way to do that is by electing people to Congress or getting mm -hmm. involved with the presidential campaign. Right. And so a huge part of what the mistrust book is about is helping people look at other levers of change. Mm -hmm. So law is a great lever for change. Mm -hmm. uh, if we can pass a law or if we can get a Supreme Court decision, mm -hmm. we can get important changes made. Mm -hmm. uh, the Oberfelger case, where we suddenly have equal marriage mm -hmm. legal, we know the name of this one county clerk who resisted marrying people because, frankly, she's the only person in the nation mm -hmm. who didn't follow along with it. That mm -hmm. law gets passed and 99.99% mm -hmm. of America is suddenly able to have yeah. the right to marry. I just call her that but, lady, that mean lady. What's that? I yeah, just, I'm not even going to dignify that. I just, the call, name. Her that we'll just call her lady. that lady. <laughs> that mean lady. Um, but that's not the only way to make change, yeah. right? So I end up talking about three other levers that I see people trying to use for change. Mm -hmm. I see people using markets very effectively for change. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at climate, this is one of the levers that's been so effective. We haven't gotten the U.S. to sign up for a carbon market. We haven't gotten the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, until very recently to even agree to things like the Paris Accords. Mm -hmm. But we're starting to see the boom of rooftop solar. We're starting to see electric cars. This becomes a form of activism through production and consumerism that actually can be very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, when I was teaching over at MIT, people were re really interested in change through code. How does technology give us another path towards change. Mm -hmm. In the wake of Edward Snowden's revelations, we have not had a mass movement demanding more privacy mm -hmm. that we probably should have. Mm -hmm. But you have someone like Moxie Marlinspike creating Signal, mm -hmm. and that gets incorporated into WhatsApp, and suddenly you have billions of people with very strong encryption. Right. And then finally, the space that I see people working the hardest on mm -hmm. is norms change, trying to figure out how you change hearts and minds. And when I look at movements um, like Black Lives Matter, particularly when I look at Me Too, I see these as norm-centered movements. Mm -hmm. um, we have not seen a ton of new legislation about sexual assault and harassment in the workplace. What we have seen is quite a deep cultural change mm -hmm. in people's willingness to talk about it and people's willingness to support victims of it. Mm -hmm. And that starts leading towards real change. Mm -hmm. My hope in many ways is that norms change becomes a precursor to things like legal change. Mm -hmm. When we look at something like the Oberfelga decision, we had time. had a huge change in social norms about queer equality. Mm -hmm. We had had 70% of Americans willing to say, I support equal marriage for gays and lesbians mm -hmm. before that law passes. Right. When you have the Loving case back in the 1950s, 10% of Americans support mm -hmm. interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. The court takes the lead there. These days, our norms seem to take the lead and the court seems so to So it had already been done, you're saying, because it did take a long time and a lot of work that people didn't realize. But then it was... It was not as much. It was a social justice movement, obviously, and it was a number of other things. But I think it was the sentiment. Some of it did have to do with the media, like the television shows and the depictions started to change. Absolutely. Will and Grace, Queer yeah. Eye for the Straight Guy. Ellen. All of these things yeah. contribute to a norms based change mm -hmm. 
that can make a legal change possible. Mm -hmm. The idea is not that one of these levers is superior to the others. Mm -hmm. It's that we actually end up using all four of them. And the movements that seem to do really well end up figuring out how to use them all at the same time. People forget that the civil rights movement was incredibly media conscious. Mm -hmm. They were ensuring that there was photographic coverage from Life magazine at right. every protest that they right. were having. Right. And they were using that to do norms change to complement the legal change. Mm -hmm. And then they were doing things like the Montgomery bus boycott, which is a classic economic market-based theory of change. Right. So some of this is just reflecting that the toolkit is just bigger than we're usually taught that it is. It's not just about voting. Right. Right. It's about trying to figure out what are these different tools you can use mm -hmm. to make social change. All right. We're going to get to questions in a minute, but I want to, when you think about those things, which give, give me an example of something that's brought people together. Cause I, this theory that I've been talking about on one of my other podcasts is the idea that uh, professor Galloway of NYU wrote about called dispersion that we've been dispersed, like things are getting dispersed, whether we don't go back to the office anymore. Like there's there, that it was a community that was a strong community being in an office in an office environment. The other one is education. We've been dispersed to zoom and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and health, healthcare, we've been dispersed. We don't go to the doctors. Most people have been sick with COVID without going anywhere, just being in their homes. One of the things he, the point he was making is with dispersion comes, and, and it's, a, it's a, sort of a loaded word, but it's true, segregation. We start to segregate ourselves off. And the, we have less community civic-based things, not restaurants, not any, not churches. What is, this was a trend that was already happening. How do we get back to the idea of what a civic community is? Because if everyone's mouthing off on Twitter, which is a, which is a reductive, angry way to interact, sometimes funny. The Bernie meme was fantastic. You know, like it can be very happy and fulfilling. You know, in a lot of ways. How do you get, what do you, what comes back in terms of community? How do you is it local? Is it localized community? Is it family? Is it because it's it's not church necessarily for a lot of people, although yeah. it's for many people. Where is the strong community? It's not digital. And what's the community that's digital that works? Well, I, I actually am going to talk even more about the digital mm -hmm. than, than the not digital. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think we need to talk about it because, you know, as much as I think we all hope to be out in person in a couple of months, um, we're also, I think, increasingly aware mm -hmm. um, that, you know, pandemics happen uh, mm -hmm. and that we really are. Um, moving into a different world and perhaps a dangerous world. Mm -hmm. But I, I mostly want to talk about it because it's kind of where my own work has gone. I wrote this Thank book. You. I sort of asked myself this question at the end of it. Do you want to go work within a powerful institution and try to make it better? Do you want to try to work outside of them? And I ended up trying to think in terms of efficacy. Where can I personally make the most change? Um, I have a lot to answer for in the history of the early internet, mm -hmm. uh, not just inventing the pop-up ad, but a mm -hmm. lot of Thanks, work Ethan. on the, yeah, sorry about that. Mm -hmm. Um, a, a lot of work on the early ad supported internet. Mm -hmm. My new work over at UMass is trying to build a new model for social media mm -hmm. that is small, that is based around communities that is based around sort of explicit civic values. Mm -hmm. And so one way to do this is to say, why do we need a community that is 2.7 billion people? Right. That's not a community. There mm -hmm. are no human communities that work at that level. Mm -hmm. Human communities work at maybe 20 to maybe 20,000. Yeah. So what if we're all interacting in a bunch of different spaces? And what if we're actually responsible for governing them? Mm -hmm. What if part of our work is actually figuring out what's responsible behavior and what's responsible speech. One of the things that's happened is that 
and this goes back to Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone, right? Mm -hmm. We don't belong to community organizations. And not only does that mean we don't get the weak ties, it also means that we don't get the experience of having those hard conversations about mm -hmm. how do we govern ourselves? What's okay? What's not okay? When you're out of line, do we shun you? Do we sanction you? How do we handle it? I actually think that rebuilding social media around small communities that are taking responsibility for their own governance mm -hmm. is going to be part of that step in the right direction. Right. I think well, you're sort of describing Reddit, aren't you? Things, what's you're that? Kind of describing Reddit when it doesn't and it's not crazy. Essentially, Reddit is absolutely one of the inspirations right. for it. I, mm -hmm. I had a doctoral student, Nate Matias, mm -hmm. who's now a professor at Cornell, mm -hmm. and he did work on how governance often functions on Reddit, mm -hmm. and it often functions really well. It does, in parts, um, yeah. And it functions best when they actually pull the community and sort of ask them what they want and what they need. Mm -hmm. But yeah, social media that is halfway between public media and Reddit. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of where my own work is going on mm -hmm. this. But I think more than anything, rather than tackling these federal level problems, which I agree are really, really hard and mm -hmm. really challenging because we're polarized into these two camps all the mm -hmm. time, trying to figure out how we're building community and particularly how we're building community with people who we might have one thing in common, but we might have quite a bit of difference around something else. I think that's enormously important. Okay. And, and publicly, anything. Just, and then I want to get to questions. So I want to ask several of these really good questions. And, and publicly, I, I mean, the, the model that, oh, as far as actually how we create Physically. public spaces. Yeah. Is it restaurants? I, Just getting back into a restaurant, we'll probably all be so happy. It won't matter. I, I think, you know, one of the most extraordinary uh, ways to do this is, is actually to figure out how we get the vaccine out there. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm starting to see is mobilization of people willing to mask up, glove up and drive people um, yep. to vaccination sites. Sure. Um, I actually think, you know, and, and my hope is that the Biden administration is listening. I know they mm -hmm. listen to you all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is a place where a, a wartime like mobilization yeah. actually could be incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we do know is having that common enemy has that tendency to sort of cross the borders. Mm -hmm. I, I think the difficulty is that I'm not sure that everybody agrees that this is a common enemy. Right. Uh, and, and that's one of those moments where when reality itself fractures, it's hard it's to know It's interesting. The numbers have gone up rather considerably, you know, it's it, even though it's, it, it is party lines and Republicans don't want to take the vaccine as much. The numbers are quite a bit higher than yeah. people thought, despite the incessant um, drumbeat drumbeat by anti-vaxxers and stuff and i think i think um pressing down on them on these online places is really you know one of the things i always say is you know they're like they're oh they're going to go underground i'm like they thrive in the light actually it's this mold thrives in the light and that's that's where we that shut off the light and see what happens um rather than the other way around it's an interesting phenomenon but i find that um, when a lot of this white supremacist stuff was underground, it was less dangerous than over when you could visit because it had more potential to uh, recruitment and, and propaganda and the, the stuff that really works on people in, in any setting, actually, not just. It, it also doesn't have the power to set the agenda. That's right. Uh, Yohai Benkler over at Harvard did great work in the wake of the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. And he basically said, look, what happened was the really crazy out there far right, gateway pundit stuff mm -hmm. like that. They swayed Breitbart, Breitbart swayed Fox News, yes. and suddenly the New York Times has to address what Fox News wants to talk about. Right, that's absolutely um, true. Getting rid of that chain 
where real extremism mm -hmm. is able to decide what we talk about. Yep. That's what made the 2016 election about immigration. Yeah. Um, that was not necessarily the this subject that we most needed to talk about at that moment in time, right. but it was certainly the subject Absolutely. that the nationalist right wanted a to talk about. Absolutely. Okay, let's ask some questions uh, for you, Ethan. The first one, can Congress ever recover when people like Ted Cruz... Oh, Ted Cruz, who have taken a flamethrower to the place, are calling for civility and from their cynical point of view. Ted Cruz is a real, you know, loudmouth. I don't know how else to say it, but and he uses Twitter, he uses all kinds of places. Um, uh, how, how do you do that when someone is being cynically using the idea of civility and then turns around and kicks you in the teeth? I, I do think civility is a form of incrementalism, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's a way of essentially saying, um, let's not get too crazy. Let's not put the big ideas out there. I'll throw out one of the ideas that I, I talk about in the book, and I talk about it in the context of radical institutionalism. Can you pull an institution back to its values and its mm -hmm. roots? Mm -hmm. Crazy little bit of history. One of the very few things George Washington says about the Constitution as it's being written, mm -hmm. is that it's important that the representatives in the House of Representatives represent 30,000 people, mm -hmm. not 40,000 people. That would be too much. Mm -hmm. We really need one rep per 30,000. Mm -hmm. We're now at about one rep per 770,000, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And we haven't substantially reapportioned the House since the 1920s. Mm -hmm. You could have a big house. Um, if you redid the House of Representatives, you would have 11,000 representatives. Wow. You would have one representative per 30,000 people. My little rural county out here in Western Mass would have three reps. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't meet in the Capitol anymore. You would have to digitize. You would have to figure out how hmm. to do this very differently. A lot of things come out of that. Yeah, It's very, very hard at that point to go and lobby people at cocktail parties when yeah. they're scattered all over the United States. Yes, the like whole that. electoral college disappears without needing a constitutional amendment yeah. because suddenly you have proportional representation because mm -hmm. you've got that. So these are some of these crazy ideas that you can do not through saying we need something totally radically different, but actually looking at what values we had at the heart of that. Oh, okay. So the Senate does have this value mm -hmm. of really thoughtful discussion. It's supposed to mm -hmm. act as a break on the populist passions of the House. But these days, it seems to be politicized to the point where it's essentially in a moment of paralysis. Yeah. Um, you may need structural change. Yeah, um, it'd be interesting. And, the Senate would be something that parallels a crazy idea like the one that I'm putting out there for the yeah, House. Yeah, that's interesting. The Senate would be hard. I, I love when they're always like, we, "We're known for being civil," and they kick each other in the teeth. I'm like, "You're, st I don't get it. I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't. It's sort of a romantic version of what the Senate's supposed to be." All right, people like me laugh watching videos of Jordan Klepper from The Daily Show and All Gas No Breaks interviewing crazy people at Trump rallies and other places. But we should we take it more seriously? What do you think of that? Well, I think we absolutely should. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, one of the interesting pieces of research that, that my lab at MIT ended up mm -hmm. doing was on anti-vax. Mm -hmm. And we started with the assumption that anti-vaxxers were crazy mm -hmm. and didn't believe in science and so on and so forth. What we ended up discovering was that anti-vaxxers were reading huge numbers of scientific papers. Mm -hmm. They were reading them badly. They were reading them through a very particular lens, mm -hmm. which was... They didn't trust big business. They didn't trust big pharma. And they thought that by reading the medical literature, they would find evidence that mm -hmm. vaccines were all a scam. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that they were stupid. Actually, they were very thoughtful and careful 
in assembling information, they were just assembling it towards a really bad mm -hmm. agenda. Right. Um, and I see this within QAnon as well. I, I see people making incredible deep dives, um, but it's just through an agenda mm -hmm. that is so far off, it's very hard to know, you know, how to get them back there. Right. I think it's too easy to dunk on people who have conspiracy theories or who are looking at this from uh you know the point of view where where they appear to be crazy i think in some ways sort of thinking about what are the systems that are actually failing all of us yeah. um and the systems that might lead someone um to this point of despair there's recent research came out in the times that mm -hmm. many of the people who were actually in the capital during the riots had had acute financial hardship yep. of one fashion or another. Yeah. Maybe that's an indication that some of those systems and some of those institutions are causing such harm to people that they end up reacting in ways that are absolutely not yeah, justifiable an, and absolutely was, not okay. That was a fascinating story. But maybe we can't dismiss it too easily. This is a story that showed that many of the people that were arrested had very bad financial problems, more excessive than most people, the bankruptcies and house foreclosures and, and this and that. So it was an interesting indication of possible desperation, which was which was led to why not? Why, why not break it all down? Um, so uh, though, though I would say, let me just say, when, I think the press went overboard in doing the Trump voter in the diner story, which I'm like, oh, that's, sure. not, that's not everybody. And actually, I think most people are in the middle and quite just don't know what to, I, I think there's there's they go to the we go to the extreme in the press either you know and and the trump voter in the diner story that's that was way too overdone in some ways and it gave you a sense that everybody thought this which they didn't which was interesting i i think if we're going to talk about who systems are failing we really have to talk about people of color yeah i think we really have to talk about immigrants right. I, I think we have to talk about women i don't think we should be talking about rural male white Trump voters. Exactly, exactly. But I do think it's possible to acknowledge that some of our systems are failing almost everybody. Exactly. In the same, uh, the commonality of them is your talking, the commonality of the failing systems versus the putting them into individual groups. All right. Do any, a tr question, do any trust issues uh, from now go back to the Civil War? Yes. It's a great question. Yeah. One of the, the bits of research that I would most want to have mm -hmm. is what trust in government looked like at different moments in history. Mm -hmm. We have good data from about the 1950s onwards. But I think a lot of historians are starting to look at the post-World War II period as this really golden moment in American history mm -hmm. where systems were redistributing a lot of income. You had the GI Bill. People were going to school. Mm -hmm. It was a really good moment to be trusting in government. Mm -hmm. um, how much trust in government did we have in the 1920s? Uh, how much did we have in the wake of the Civil War? Obviously, during Reconstruction, white Southerners had almost no trust in government. Mm -hmm. Black Southerners had increased trust in government. I mean, this is the other piece of this is that we more recently have um, numbers that sort of break this apart racially. And generally speaking, black Americans have been less trusting of the government than white Americans, although that is changing over time. We would love to have that going back in the time. This whole discourse around inequality really came from Thomas Piketty sort of coming and saying, let's look at this not just the last 40 or 50 years, let's look at this 500 years. Mm -hmm. And maybe we'll find a way to do that and talk about trust in different institutions over the course of centuries. We just don't have the meaningful data right now. Right. 
All right, question. People have long said Trump is the symptom and not the disease. Do you agree with this assessment uh, as it relates to trust? So I don't think Trump could have been elected unless we already had a very high state of mistrust. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I think Trump is absolutely a symptom and a warning that Mm -hmm. we could end up there again. Uh, At a moment of very low trust, would-be authoritarians um, start looking very appealing. That said, I do think Trump weaponized mistrust in a way that we've just never seen before. Mm -hmm. And that the situation that we found ourselves in by the end of the Trump administration was not just that organic mistrust. It was sort of mistrust that had been grabbed and used to pull the party further to the right and to pull his agenda forward. Yeah, 100%. He can also be a symptom and a disease, like a rash of some sort, some terrible rash. There. Right. You want to treat it as well as sort of figuring <laughs> out what's wrong with you your diet. You need some ointment yeah. or something. Like that. It is interesting. The two phrases is that one. And the other one is, uh, this is not our country. And I'm like, it kind of is like, that's, I hate that expression. I'm like, yeah, it is kind of thing. Um, we don't want it to be. That's another issue. Okay. Question. Can a big tech play any, can big tech play any positive role in the trust crisis? Is it too late for them to play a positive role? I'm going to just caveat that question. There's no such thing as big tech. Different companies are different, right? So, so talk about it in different company ways, because I don't think, you know, I don't think Apple and Facebook are the best of pals at any time in their history. No, no, that's right. And, and, and we tend to sort of oversimplify the mm-hmm. whole yeah. space. Um, I've actually seen modest moves towards a pro-social behavior from some of the tech companies. So name them. Um, what, what can they I, do? I, I thought deplatforming Trump when he was inciting violence, uh, I thought was a reasonable thing to do. Although mm-hmm. in the long run, I'm very worried about platforms having the ability to do it. We didn't talk much about this, but in the middle of the summer when the pandemic video came out, mm-hmm. platforms actually reacted quite quickly Uh, to Mm -hmm. tamp that down. That didn't spread Mm -hmm. nearly as far. Jonathan Zittrain over at Harvard Law School is sort of observing that the platforms seem to be moving towards this idea of civic health rather than just free speech. Mm -hmm. And so voting disinformation, COVID misinformation, maybe they'll get more aggressive about it. I think having the platforms feel like they have a public responsibility rather than just let everyone speak, I think that's a move in the right direction. I think it is worth acknowledging. I will say, as we talk about it, we don't talk a lot about YouTube, which actually has kind of a terrible track record around this, has been enormously powerful Mm -hmm. uh, in enabling disinformation. Hard to study because it's harder to study video than it is to study text. Mm -hmm. Um, In the long run, though, I don't want enormous tech companies to be the savior of our public sphere. I just think that's the wrong way to go. And that's why I actually think we need a lot more people thinking about what comes after big tech. Right. Um, And I realize that's hard, right? These have become Mm -hmm. our most powerful and our most profitable companies. But this is the sort of imagination that I'm asking people to have. If you think those systems are really as broken as many Mm -hmm. of us do, Mm -hmm. we need to think about what's an alternative system that can fill some of the same needs. Yeah, it's interesting. And also, you know, changing the business models, like say a guy who invented pop-up ads and and, and targeted advertising like yourself, like you've got to change the incentives around, around keeping people addicted to these platforms, right? Or you can ban it. Or yeah. you can tax it. And yeah. I think those are tax. both worth talking I like about. I like that. I, you um, know, I wrote a column saying well, that. Let's just have a social media tax. And it's like a, so, a soda well, tax. Like you, you ruined our teeth. 
it's time for you to pay for that like, kind of thing. So Paul Paul Romer made the suggestion mm-hmm. a couple of years ago on taxing surveillance advertising, and mm-hmm. you, you know he's smarter than both you and me. He's mm-hmm. got a Nobel Prize in economics. Mm-hmm. He thinks it's a pretty good idea. Yeah. What I'd like to do with it is actually use that tax on social media mm-hmm. to fund, you know, the PBS Educate. of yep. social media, the yep. children's television workshop. How do we get the Sesame Street of social networks? We mm-hmm. probably need some really careful thought about what social networks could do that's positive for us. Or election rather information, right education, now. that kind of stuff. You could do it. You could, you could target it a lot of really interesting things. Um, question. There's two more questions. What does the role of people like Robert Kennedy Jr., who lean on their famous names and affiliations, but with little actual expertise, have to do with our trust crisis? So celebrities. Yeah. There just was a story. Gina Carano was just tossed off of a bunch of Mandalorian, again, doing the same thing. She was pushing a whole bunch of, I think, anti-vax stuff, a whole, a whole bunch of stuff. So f- talk about the idea of famous names and affiliations doing having impact like this. So we talked a little bit about this notion of um, change through norms, right? Mm-hmm. And the people who are most powerful at changing norms are celebrities mm-hmm. um, because they have right. a huge audience to start with. Um, there are some people who have managed to develop that huge audience um, by being great at social change. You mm-hmm. look at someone like David Hogue, mm-hmm. um, you know, survivor of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who's sort mm-hmm. of trying to figure out how to harness that. But it does mean that uh, when celebrities go out and push crazy things, um, we probably need other celebrities sort of trying to figure out a way to, to stand out and sort of stamp that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that trading on fame, whether it's a famous name or whether it's a mm-hmm. reputation for something else, uh, can be incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we've been talking a huge amount about Donald Trump and all of this. Trump essentially traded on a whole bunch of artificial fame that he had generated from the perception of being a billionaire to make the case that he would be safer to elect. So Um, who who is using it in a good way? Who would you say who's using it in a good way? Give me an example of where you saw that working. And then we have one more question. So um, I think there's been an enormous amount of support for Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. um, coming from celebrities. I think Colin Kaepernick is probably the most amazing Agreed. example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, literally saying, you know, do you really want us to celebrate um, rather than critiquing this nation? We need to recognize the things that aren't working well as the ones that are working well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen Kaepernick pay a price. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that is the danger with all of this. Um, you can get support from one narrow group, as as Robert F. Kennedy Jr. now is getting. Um, but it's possible to compromise that celebrity status at the same time instead of trying to use it as a force for change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what Cap has done is quite brave. I agree. All right, last question. What are your thoughts about Wall Street bets and how it relates to your topic? Uh, it's a com- so it's a complex issue it, too. It's not quite the the David and Goliath story that. No, no, it's really not right. right. I mean, Wall Street bets is a classic populist movement. Mm-hmm. Um, the little guy is going to take down the big guy, mm-hmm. and let's all of us get together and we'll destroy those mean, nasty hedge fund managers. Mm-hmm. Of course, the danger of it is that it may be other hedge fund managers who've actually made the most money mm-hmm. off of all of this. Um, my friend Tim Wong had the wonderful observation that, mm-hmm. of course, you can buy a fake account on Reddit uh, for a few cents. Maybe there's a very clever hedge fund out there that's figuring out how to pump a stock mm-hmm. by using fake accounts on, uh, on mm-hmm. Wall Street bets. Here's the difference between sort of the movements that I'm talking about that are actually trying to change an institution. 
Wall Street Bets looks at this and says, let's make a hedge fund hurt. Mm -hmm. But they're not actually looking at this system, which has concentrated enormous amounts of wealth into the hands of a very small number of people. It'd be really interesting if they're the just playing their Wall game. Bets, they're just they're just trying to play their game. That's all they do. And 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 to win at it, which mm -hmm. is which is fine and makes sense. But the really radical thing would be to look at all of this and say, wait a second, why aren't we taxing stock market transactions? Why mm -hmm. aren't there incremental taxes on this? Why are mm -hmm. people creating algorithms that make a thousand trades a second and using it to make money? Is that something that we actually see as socially helpful? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we follow what Elizabeth Warren and others are saying and find ways? to actually slow down these markets and use that to generate some of the revenue that we actually need to make some of the changes in society. So how do we get beyond that woohoo, let's mm -hmm. beat them at their own game mm -hmm. and actually try to sort of channel this yeah. energy into really deep long-term change? Okay, we're almost done. I have one last question. Is there one person you think has trust? Like if you had to pick, there used to be people that, you know, that people would point to, you know, I, I'm, I'm not showing my age, Walter Cronkite. I, so he sort of, I sort of missed him, but that idea, is there, is there a person that does it or does it always have to be the president kind of thing? I, I mean, when you look at, at who seems to inherit that moral authority, mm -hmm. um, you know, the president is sort of our designated truster in chief, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that for many people on the left, Obama has sort of retained that through mm -hmm. the generations. I think he probably has it even more so mm -hmm. uh, than, than even Biden has at this point. I'm wondering if truth tellers are going to start being the most trusted. I, I actually find myself looking at someone like Greta Thunberg, mm -hmm. um, who really seems absolutely unafraid mm -hmm. of telling what she seems to be the truth. I think she may turn out to be the sort of person we trust. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some of the people who are leading Black Lives Matter and who are willing to really sort of put themselves out on the line, mm -hmm. I think that conviction uh, and that willingness to put things on the line to make deep social change, I think that may be what we end up uh, putting trust Certain in. Certain people, Lauren. not necessarily... Um politicians not necessarily positions and mm -hmm. and not necessarily politicians business not necessarily leaders. business leaders i okay. i think we're all learning that those institutions don't always select the best individuals and that those institutions don't always deserve our trust great ethan thank you so much and our thanks to ethan zuckerman author of the new book mistrust why losing faith in institutions provides the tools that transform them. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Ethan. It's a really terrific uh, topic, and it's really, really important. And we forgive you for pop-ups, for for pop but not that much. Um, uh, we'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Kara Swisher. Thank you, and uh, stay safe, everyone. We hope to see you in person um, relatively soon, at some point. 2021. Thank you, okay, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org/donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.